The information in this broadcast is for educational purposes only and is not provided as a professional service, medical advice, or is it intended or implied to be a substitute for diagnosis or treatment. You are encouraged to confirm any information obtained from this broadcast with other sources and review all information regarding any medical condition or treatment with your physician and other appropriate health care providers. Hi, I'm Pete Levine. Welcome to Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified. I'm a clinical instructor and clinical researcher. I've co-authored dozens of scientific journal articles about brain injury recovery, and I'm also the author of the book, Stronger After Stroke. I'm Deborah Battistella, occupational therapist, creator of the OT's Guide to Mirror Therapy, and an OT educator. I have a lot of experience working with survivors. Most of my clinical practice has been in a certified stroke center. Pete and I are especially interested in talking about what rehab, neuroscience, and clinical research all have to say about the brain and recovery. But don't worry, our job is to make this stuff simple. We're here to make it so that everyone, clinicians, clinical students, caregivers, and most importantly, the survivor, understands what it takes to leverage the great neuroplastic brain for recovery. In What Works, Part 1, Pete and I talked about how and why action observation works. When it's good to use constraint-induced therapy, we talked about mirror therapy again, how mental practice got its start, and how and why it works, when and when not to use stretching. And then we had a good conversation about interventions that go well together. And we also chatted a bit about mindset and thinking about boredom as it relates to recovery. to talk about marijuana well who doesn't exactly you live in new york man you can do anything you want (laughs) ohio there's string out but yeah so what about what about pot first of all i learned that it doesn't cause stroke the way cigarettes do cigarette smoking it's really good for treating other effects beyond the spasticity and things like that it's it's more like anxiety anger sadness frustration hopelessness fear depression types of feelings which I think is really important because if people are feeling those negative types of emotions, then it's harder to participate in your rehabilitation. I, I've done some talks in Colorado recently, and you know, there's often therapists from every different kind of facility. I'm like, hey, does anybody here um, work in skilled nursing? And I go, yeah, yeah, they do. So um, are they allowed to smoke pot? I mean, you know, these are people, they're adults. Can they smoke pot? They go, yeah, yeah, they can smoke pot. And I go, how does that affect rehab? Well, they don't want to go. They just say, no, I'm not. They're too chill. I'm not not going anywhere. (laughs) So there is that downside. I actually was just looking up to see if there was anything about subconscious mind and stroke recovery, but not finding anything super scientific yeah you don't like the idea of just saying look at this watch as it goes like a pendulum you're getting sleepy now go back to your 20s you can walk now 
get up and walk, walk. And the guy falls to the floor, you know, like that. Yeah, no. <laughs> it's a, something out of The Simpsons or something. Okay. Yeah. Okay. You ready? I'm ready. Okay. Hey, Deb Batitzel. How you doing? I'm good, Pete. How are you? Haven't seen you in about a half an hour. You're looking good. Did you get something to eat? You know what? I went for a walk, did a little yoga, and made myself some coffee. Really? How about, yeah. That's impressive. Well, you know, you got to move the body. You do have to move the body. I forgot about that part. <laughs> I didn't do that. Here's what I did. I opened up a jar of sauerkraut that we've been having sitting in our pantry for about a month. And mm-hmm. uh, me and my wife had some, and then we had it with hot dogs. And my daughter left the house holding her nose. Yeah, then, you kind of uh, have to when sauerkraut's involved. Yeah, it's good for the the intestinal biome, though. <laughs> I love sauerkraut. <laughs> it is good. And so we mm-hmm. tried to replicate like New York street food by putting sauerkraut oh. on a hot dog. And mm-hmm. of course, they were veggie dogs. Um, and then I was able to Facebook instant message my sister, Wendy. And I mentioned this before. When she was very young, she had a car accident, suffered a really bad traumatic brain injury. Her car flipped over again and again. She was cut off on the New Jersey Turnpike coming back from a Christmas vacation. It was a huge trauma for the family. Uh, My parents were living overseas at the time. They had to come back home. Um, She was airlifted out. And uh, she ended up doing really quite well for somebody with brain injury. Uh, She has some orthopedic problems. Her walking is ataxic. And she's dysarthric, which is something I want to talk about with regard to the extension of what we talked about the last episode. So this is What Works, part two. And one of the things I want to talk about is a study that went into dysarthria, Mm. which is what one of the residual aspects of what my sister Wendy has. And I was messaging her and saying, is it okay if I talk about this stuff um, on the podcast? And she said, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Go ahead. And she added some other insights that I'm going to add to this article when we talk about it. Good. Yeah. She's pretty cool about it. That's pretty nice of her. Yeah. Thanks, Wendy. Yeah. Thanks, Wendy. My name's Peter. Name's Wendy. We were named, and I'm not making this up, after Peter Pan and Wendy. That's how my mom's brain works. And then we have another, I have a younger sister that I named and her name's Peggy. Anyway, I digress. So I want to talk about something that I don't think we touched on. You touched on it several times, but just to buttress what you said about action observation, according to the very stellar evidence-based review of stroke rehabilitation, action observation may be beneficial for some aspects of upper limb function following stroke. So I think we're all in with action observation. This is what's so bizarre to me. I thought with mental practice and e-stim, and constraint-induced therapy, you know, this would be this bundle of things that would work to help people with brain injury. And I would be able to ride that wave until long past my retirement. And I would never have to worry about learning another thing. I just spiel about that. Action observation hits me out of the blue. I have no idea. Bob T. Sell, the guy who runs the EBRSR, he's talking about everybody's fascinated by this idea that if you watch somebody doing something well, you will do things better. It's why musicians love watching their favorite musicians. It's why athletes love watching other athletes. They move better after they have this sort of mirror, mirror neuron response of looking at the other person doing stuff well. So it kind of hit you out of the blue. Like, help me understand this. 
well, we did a lot of work with mental practice, so that didn't hit me out of the blue. But as I told you last episode, it would have hit me out of the blue if Steve hadn't hit me out of the blue with it. I mean, it was like, how is that going to help? You know, mirror Mm -hmm. therapy hit me out of the blue. I guess all this really cool stuff that doesn't take a lot of equipment hits me out of the blue. And I expect it to be some either drug or something very expensive. And it's not. And I love that. I think it's really cool because it it seems like people are actually tapping into the power of the body. And so it's like the body is healing itself in a way. Yeah, in every way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had a clinical instructor back in school and um, we were talking about different treatment options. And she said, um, you know, we really don't heal them. They really heal themselves. And uh, I thought that was so sexy. I married her. It's my wife. Isla. I was going to ask said, if that was your wife. <laughs> it was my wife Isla. And she taught me so many things and she still does. And every once in a while I say, would you like to be on our podcast? And she's like, no, I do not want to be on your podcast. That's not her voice at all. I can't do a Finnish accent and she doesn't have a really low voice. No, I don't want to be on your podcast. Go away. Something like I, that. She might. I think she might one day. Maybe she will. You just keep asking. I will. I will. She knows a lot of stuff. I keep trying to get her maybe to go into teaching. But anyway, okay. So action observation, we're all in for that. Okay. Do you have something you want to add now or should I just keep piling on? I actually thought of a question when I was walking and it had to do with our conversation where you shared the story about how you told Steve not to pursue the mental practice investigation and (laughs) rub it in. Go ahead. Screwed up. um, What can you say? Well, I think this is an important thing to talk about because how many times we all do this, we all say, Oh no, that's no, that's just silly. And um, I think there's still some of that no thing going on with these interventions that actually work. So we all have a little resistance to some things. And I just thought maybe you'd want to talk a little bit more about that. Like, I mean, you made it sound like you. as soon as he got the funding for it, you were all in. But then did you develop a curiosity about it? Like, how does that work when? <laughs> this, is <laughs> funnier, but this is why you shouldn't go for walks, Deb. You keep thinking these smart thoughts and then I got to defend myself. I'm yeah, not I asking mean- you to defend yourself. I'm asking you to help us understand because I think we, we all have these resistances in us. Hmm. I mean, I saw dense hemiparesis. I knew what it was like. I dealt with, even back then, with stroke survivors going into seizures during walking. Mental practice, this soft thing that elite athletes use and elite musicians use to be at the top of their game, that's too way too soft. So I don't think that the reluctance was anything but pure logic, but how logical was it in hindsight? It wasn't logical at all. And I, and I was wrong. Yeah. I wasn't trying to get you to say that you were wrong. Um, You're trying to figure I out get that. what is people's natural resistance to something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I get that because um, I have a similar experience. Like I, I worked in the intensive care unit. I saw the worst of people's experiences following stroke 
And um, so when you're immersed in it, you see it, you actually work with people who have these experiences. It's kind of hard to believe that something might change or work for them. What are you eating? A snack? Oh, taking your supplements. It's a long story. You know, um, I, I've had this yeah. like annoying cough. It has to do with its allergies. Mm. And I don't know. So I got Tabasco and I'm oh. going to try to see if this works. Oh my God. Remember what we talked about with resistance to new ideas? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Capsaicin, okay. man, it cures everything, including cancer. Okay. Yeah. So what were you saying? <laughs> you were saying we have know. this resistance. Maybe mm. you have had this resistance. You've also talked about resistance in your life generally mm-hmm. to, to taking that leap of faith. Yeah. And that, I mean, stroke survivors are not immune to that. And clinicians, all of us, we're not immune to that. And I just, I don't know. I just think it's cool to hear the personal stories. So maybe the, the, the reason we do research is to take ourselves out of that comfort zone. Mm-hmm. I mean, the whole idea behind science is you're always asking questions. And if you don't, there's no downside because if it doesn't work, you know, it's all going to be done under the auspices of the Institutional Review Board, you're going to make sure it's ethical and it's not going to hurt anybody. Um, so you may as well try it. Mm-hmm. If it, you try it and it doesn't work, maybe you got to move on. Or maybe somebody else will add something and it will work. Or they'll subtract something that you did and it'll work. But maybe that's the role of research to take those sorts of risks. But I'm sort of like Garth in um, Wayne's World. Remember Garth? <laughs> we fear change. So that was his big line in there. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, sometimes we just fear change and mm-hmm. change is risky and it changes our brain. And so there's a whole bunch of problems. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Pete. Yeah. I answered absolutely nothing. Hey, let's no, not forget. Let's- remember, we were talking about how you have two great tastes that taste great together, chocolate mm-hmm. and peanut butter, and you added caramel. And I was like, mm-hmm. why caramel? Come on. And then I got really hungry because it sounded really good. Um, so, Action observation with mental practice, with constraint induced therapy, with mirror therapy, you know, being able to cook the soup, come up with the right recipe for that very complicated survivor at the right time. And that's going to change because the brain is giving you a constantly changing template on which to work because it's changing neuroplastically. Yeah, which is what we want. So I have a question Is action observation? With the videos, would that be something that somebody could do on their own as a home program? What are you thinking about that? I'm thinking, yeah. I do. Cottage industry. Are you thinking of a side hustle? It never stops. Good. Yeah. Good. So there, there's a lot of downtime that people have if they go to rehab. So creating an interesting home program. So now we have a few things that we've talked about. Talked about mirror therapy. We talked about something else they could do on their own. What was that? Do you remember? Well, mental oh, yeah. practice. Mm-hmm. Mental, mental practice. Yeah. The sensation recovery. Yeah. Um, Forced use. We do a lot of that at home in modified constraint induced therapy. Yeah. Where you just live your life with the affected limb. Yeah. Just make sure you get a therapist in there, at least for the first chapter, and then make it your own. And then go back to them, have them do accurate measures throughout. I think you're fine doing that. Yeah. And it might be a nice way for, especially for somebody who's more in the chronic phase of recovery. And if 
insurance isn't covering visits anymore with a therapist, maybe they could just do like once every so often schedule a visit or when they, you know, develop this plan together with a therapist. And then if they notice a plateau, then maybe it's time to meet up again. Something like that. Yeah. So that recovery after the initial plateau is a series of other plateaus. Yeah. And of course the thing, because I talk to survivors a lot, excuse me. Tabasco's coming back up on you. The Tabasco or the, uh, whatchamacallit, sauerkraut. <laughs> um, I talk to survivors about this a lot. Don't forget you're getting older. So they'll talk about, well, I want, I want the old me. Well, the old you wouldn't have existed anyway because you had your stroke 20 years ago. So we're all fighting against old man time or however you say that, the, the, our mortal coil or mm. our inevitable decline to some degree. So maybe degree. Um, think about yourself as an evolution evolving into more of yourself because really the essence of who we are never goes away. So you think we become more of who we are? Yeah, if you if you allow yourself to, yes. That's bad news for me. I don't know if I can handle any more of me. <laughs> it's not good news. Trust me. Okay. Maybe we should move on. Mm-hmm. I got a new chapter and maybe you have some stuff on this. I want to talk about Easton. Oh, I don't have anything on that. So this is stuff that works. Okay. Transcranial electrical nerve stimulation, also known as TENS. So TENS is the thing that you get for pain. There's no muscle contraction. There's no joint movement. It may be beneficial for some aspects of upper limb function following stroke. Wow. TENS. Hmm. You know how much they cost on Amazon? Next to nothing, but see your therapist first. Here's another one. The various types of neuromuscular electrical stimulation may not be more beneficial compared to one another. Wait, can you say that again, please? There's various types of neuromuscular electrical stimulation. So that's NMES. That's where there is a muscle contraction and probably a joint movement. They may not be more or less beneficial compared to one another. Hmm. So that's sort of interesting because there's very expensive ones. There's very inexpensive ones. Here's what I would say. If TENS does it and NMES, it doesn't really matter what kind you use. You know, I've done a lot of talks to therapists and another thing that our lab did a lot of was electrical stimulation of a variety of kinds from bioness to um, electrical stimulation that uses biofeedback. So it, it recognizes the intention of the person and rewards them with Easton that takes them the rest of the way. And that's going to be something that we'll talk about in a little bit when we talk about brain interfaces, brain muscular interfaces. Um, But I try to impress for Eastim, I try to impress on therapists. The hard part is getting out the Eastim machine and just putting the electrodes on and making it go. If all it takes is this sort of sub-threshold electrical stimulation like TENS, which is perfectly safe, they sell it at the mall, then get the machine out. We talked about this with sensation recovery, that if just the feeling of the tap, tap, tap may help reestablish sensation, and maybe that's part of it. But therapists always wring their hands and they go, well, is it interferential? Is it Russian stim? What's the pulse width? Where do I put the electrodes? And they get wrapped up in the minutia of the machine that's at work that's way too complicated to begin with because we got them at our school. They've got too many bells and whistles. It's really about getting it on there and start to remember wherever you put the electrodes on the body, that portion of the brain starts to hypertrophy. So you get to choose where's the weak spot, put the electrodes on there, turn up the knobs, 
make sure that they that you're not hurting them you can always try it on the less affected side the side that's more intact figure out what's noxious stimuli for them go below that and do it so a simple machine will do the trick i mean i'm broad brushing this but yes i think that's what i'm trying to say well, I think that I think it's important to remember because with everything that's being developed and all of the fanciness of certain machines, it, it's easy to get caught up in that. And say, ooh, this machine does all of this, but then in the day-to-day clinic practice, it can be a little overwhelming if you don't have the time to sit down and learn it. So maybe go with something that has fewer options. That's a little bit more simple, just to make it. Uh, more realistic that you'll use it clinically. There was a particular brand of e-stim that used to come up a a lot in my talks. And I'm not going to mention the brand because it might be great. But one of the things that this brand did was they'd come in, they'd sell you the stuff, and then they provide support. Lots of in-services where they'd show the clinicians how to use all the bells and whistles. I'm pretty sure I might know who that is. You probably do. Very famous company. Mm -hmm. And That's great. Then the therapists buy in because they understand the technology. I mean, it's not rocket surgery. All these people have state licenses. They all went to school. They're all really bright. They can figure this stuff out. Just do they have the clinical time to figure it out? Well, that is a lot of what it is. And then if you don't have, if you don't work like in a stroke center, if you work in subacute rehab and you don't have a whole bunch of stroke patients to work with, then the time between learning makes it it's like you're always learning something new, which it just adds to the challenge for therapists. So I might have fibbed a little bit when I said I didn't have anything for Easton. Yes, ma'am. I did, what do you got? I, well, I found something that if um, functional Easton combined with mirror therapy, um, in addition to conventional therapy, can induce a larger improvement in upper limb function compared to just conventional therapy with functional ESTEM. Interesting. Now, you have a course for mirror therapy. I do. May I ask, does your course go over combining those two great tastes? No, Pete, because when I made that course, I didn't know this information, but I am revamping it right now because I'm in the process of uh, getting AOTA approved provider status. So, kind of think it might be important to incorporate some of this stuff. I think mirror therapy just has such broad implications that there's a lot of stuff that you can dovetail with it, including ESTEM. Yeah. Interestingly, I just I had a therapist reach out to me today who wants to collaborate with me on mirror therapy because she's local and she's tired of seeing the the comments in Facebook where people are are misunderstanding how to treat spasticity and she knows, you know, how I am with the mirror therapy. And she uses it all the time in her clinic with good outcomes. So I think, yeah, I think it's important to make this a solid course because it's just becoming more apparent to me that we, maybe we just need to be a little bit more organized in understanding what works. Yeah. So, yeah, thanks. I still think that there's, you know, what's emerging, even with action observation, all these, you know, newer things coming out, there's a small group of things that work and sometimes they work good in conjunction with other things that work. Um, So you don't have to learn everything under the sun. You just need those small set of tools that, that really help. Mm -hmm. 
Here's one for you from the EBRSR. Both meridian acupressure and massage therapy may benefit some aspects of upper limb function following stroke. Our lab did a very early study on reduction of spasticity with acupressure versus acupuncture. Mm. And we found that the acupressure did just as well. And in fact, the data showed it worked a little bit better than the acupuncture. That's interesting. Another study that involved my good friend, Quinn Bond, the exercise physiologist. I found a cool article that talked about how acupuncture helps to reduce the inflammatory response following stroke, which is pretty important. So the inflammatory response, because you've talked about inflammatory response in the brain after stroke. Is this is in the, yeah. Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah. Increasing evidence suggests that acupuncture can reduce the inflammatory response after cerebral ischemia, reperfusion, and promote repair of the injured nervous system. It doesn't only inhibit the activation and infiltration of inflammatory cells, but can also regulate the expression of inflammation-related cytokines, balance the effects of pro-inflammatory and anti-inflammatory factors, and interfere with inflammatory signaling pathways. Is that, that's a journal article, I take it? Yes. And may I ask what the journal is? Neural Regeneration Research. Ooh, this is a twenty like a good one. I know, doesn't it? And this is a twenty twenty one. It was published in twenty twenty online. Okay, then, that's got to go in the show notes. Okay, that's that could be important. I think it is. I mean, inflammation—it's what you talk about all the time. Yeah, I thought that was you that talked about that. No, I think it's you. Oh, okay. Well, maybe. <laughs> well, it happens after a stroke. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You got anything else for um, acu- um, acupressure or acupuncture or what is, what do therapists call it? Dry needling. Anything for that? I don't have anything for dry needling. Um, I actually, I didn't even, it's not, it's not legal in New York state. Sadly. Oh, I, I think a lot of people have good um, outcomes with it. I've heard, but mm-hmm. I have. Um, I found one on fire needle versus conventional acupuncture in treating spasticity. And it seems like the fire needle approach was more effective. I don't really know the difference between the two. I'm not an acupuncturist. The fire um, needle involves very hot needles. I don't know. I'm guessing. Are you, ma- are you making that up? Do they put it in the fire? And I then, know. I don't know. It sounds like something out of like, the old 70s show Kung Fu. <laughs> have you ever had acupuncture? I have for headaches. Yep. Given to me by a Finnish physical therapist. Seemed to work. It was hmm. temporary though. Ah. And I found one addressing lower limb spasticity. And it says that acupuncture could improve the lower limb spasticity and motor function, thus providing a safe and economical approach for treating stroke patients. They said that the potential mechanism underpinning the greater improvement may be attributed to a reshape of corticospinal plasticity induced by acupuncture. Interesting. Yeah, I thought that was interesting too. Well, of course, these are both that you mentioned singular articles. Mm -hmm. And you know, I'm obsessed with meta-analyses where they take all the available research. 
Yeah, this one was a pilot study. So pilot study. So probably mm-hmm. pretty small, maybe. Um, uh, not a big end there. But you know, is, sometimes those studies are interesting to talk about. They are fifty-nine patients, randomized. Oh, that's pretty. That's a pretty good end. Yeah, you know, this is the European journal, and I think that um, they do they do different things over there in Europe. That's what we talk about at our college. All the cool stuff they do over there. We asked people to donate to our Venmo account to help us keep this podcast up and running. One of the things that I would like people to know about us is, if they don't already know it, is that we're pretty passionate about neuroscience and our practices and sharing this valuable information with the world. And personally, I hope people are enjoying it. I think they are based on the number of downloads that we have although I still don't understand what all of those numbers mean. And one of the things we would like to do going forward is bring people more value through our interactions with them, this podcast, and you know, just, just making it easier for people to apply research-based concepts in their practices or their recoveries. So I think people might like to know that we're working on these things from the back end and Whether or not people donate, are able to donate, we appreciate them listening and sharing the podcast with others. What are your thoughts on that? That's true. Um, And we do have a Venmo account. Do you remember the address? I do. It's at Neurons. At Neurons. That's pretty simple. It is, and it's in our title. So if you want to help out, look, we do put a lot of work into this, and we want to keep it going. And, uh, you know, as Deb said, it's not the easiest thing in the world. Yes, we giggle a lot, and yes, we're having a ball doing it, but uh, we could use your support. The other thing is that a certain percentage, 20%, is going to go to the... The Brain Injury Association of America? That's it. And they help folks who have had a brain injury, family caregivers, and they also help medical professionals who do research and treatment. It sounds like a nice organization, and I'm glad that you told me about it. Yep. We want to support all people that have had brain injury. And we can do it through the podcast, but we also do it through a 20% donation of what we make if you donate at Neurons. Yeah. And we have goals for the future of this podcast. And one thing that we'd really like to do is be able to bring our listeners a little bit more. And the only way that we're going to be able to do that is if we have some funding behind us. Mm, That's true. Yeah. Okay, great. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Well, I would like to talk about a European study. Would you? Yeah. Are we done with acupuncture, acupressure, mm-hmm. dry needling, hot acupuncture, cold acupuncture? Okay, we're done with all that. Okay. Yeah. But this one is kind of related. So from the EBRSR, it said muscle vibration may be beneficial for improving upper limb function following stroke. And it's something that you've talked about before, vibration. Um, so I deconstructed one of the studies. It was from Frontiers in Neurology, 2019. So again, the EBRSR is a meta-analysis. It looks at all the studies regarding, let's say, 
muscle vibration, and then it tries to come up with some sort of cohesive statement. But I went into an individual study that they used. Frontiers in Neurology 2019, the researcher was Toscano. They were all Italian. It was the Department of Neurology from Fate Bene Fratelli Hospital. And uh, Fate Bene means do good. And uh, Fratelli means brothers. So it's the Do Good Brothers Hospital. The name of the article was Short-Term Effects of Focal Muscle Vibration on Motor Recovery After Stroke. They used ischemic and hemorrhagic stroke survivors. Here's something interesting. It was all done within 72 hours from the symptoms onset. So these people were acute. I'm hoping they weren't hyperacute. Remember, hyperacute is broadly the first six hours. It's TPA. It's getting to the emergency room. That whole time is taken up with that basic save their life stuff. But they started this very early within 72 hours. So we're going to put a link uh, to some pictures of this machine. And I'm going to try to describe it so you have a picture in your head. So imagine a pencil. At the end of the pencil is an eraser, but the eraser isn't an eraser. It's a rubber ball about the size of a, like a marble, about the size of a marble, but it's rubber. Like a super ball? Like a Super Bowl, but small. Exactly. And there, it's even black, like a Super Bowl. Ooh, very good. So then it goes up the pencil. And the pencil, if you will, the, this pencil in this schematic is, is steel. And it goes into this cylinder that's wider than the pencil. And that's the machine that provides the vibration. How do they get it right on the muscle they want to hit? There's a boom stand that looks like a mic boom stand. And they place it right on the muscle. And it was acute for 72 hours. Each daily session consisted of three 10-minute vibration treatments, and they were carried out for three consecutive days. In the upper extremity, they did the flexor carpi radialis. These are, and correct me if I'm, I'm wrong about this, Deb, these are the finger flexors right on the inside of the forearm. And they also did the biceps. And we all know what that is. That's the Popeye muscle that flexes the elbow. In the lower extremity, they did the rectus femoris, which is a ginormous muscle. It's a quadricep muscle. It's on the front of your leg. It attaches at the hip, so it bends your hip. It attaches below the knee, goes over the knee, and attaches with the patellar tendon, and it's involved in knee extension and hip flexion. Okay, big muscle. They also had a sham control, so they tried to control, and the control was the same machine. It didn't quite touch the skin. Now, it's always troublesome in rehabilitation research to try to come up with a, with a sham treatment because it's so obvious that you're either doing something or you're not doing something. Even in our mental practice, as I mentioned last episode, we had you know, 50% of the people, the experimental group, listened to the mental practice tapes or MP3s. And then the other group listened to facts about stroke recovery. Of course, they probably knew which group they were in. In constraint-induced therapy, Some people got a constraint. Other people didn't get the constraint. They're going to know. And this is another one where they held it. And I know some of them said, Io penso questo non sono la macchina. That's my Italian. It's probably grammatically terrible, but that's the kind of the way they said, you know, I I spent a couple of years in Italy um, when I was a kid. I know very little of the language, but I understand how it sounds like only a kid can. It's a very beautiful language. Anyway, so they had the sham control. And what they found was a really good effect if it was done acutely. Now, this 
Italian researcher has been doing this work for a very long time. The problem I have with it is it involves this expensive machine. Now, can you do vibration in some other way that doesn't involve that expensive machine? That might be another question for another episode. Well, does it talk about the vibration itself, like the rate of vibration? Are you thinking that maybe a therapist might be able to replicate it? Yeah. Like, why can't you just use one of those vibrators? Like we had a a vibrator at the hospital, had two speeds, high and low. So there, I could find no video of this machine. Mm -hmm. I get the feeling it's not, it's, and that's the problem is kind of figuring out, Mm -hmm. you know, I always get the feeling when these guys come up with stuff and it shows efficacy, they want to sell their machine. So there's no videos online of what the machine does because you're right. We might be able to replicate it in some other way, but keep your eye folks on vibration. It may have some potential. Hmm. Okay. Should we talk about the lower extremity a little bit? Yeah. Okay. So here, here's one. It involves, you may have heard of it, a very sophisticated piece of equipment known as a chair. You ready? Sit to stand training may be beneficial for improving gait and muscle strength in the lower extremities. Wow. Here's another one. Sit-to-stand training with asymmetrical foot position may be beneficial for improving balance. Now, sit-to-stand, we all agree that that's a big one. OTs love it. PTs love it. It's got a lot of functional. It builds muscle. It's good for balance. It's good for muscle strengthening. And it improves gait. Sit-to-stand. All you need Imagine is a chair. Imagine that. You need a chair. You got any chairs around there? Yep, plenty of chairs over here. Yeah. Yeah, I would say maybe if you're going to use a chair, you might gradate it away from having armrests or at least not use the armrests, have them there for safety if you need them. This kind of low-tech stuff that therapists have been using forever, I love this stuff. The second one, sit-to-stand training with asymmetrical foot position. That just means that the position of the feet on the floor, one scattered a little bit further forward than the, than the other one, or maybe one's abducted a little bit more than the other one. Always do this within the parameters of safety. Have a gate belt on. Have somebody with you. Don't do anything dumb. Thank you. Don't do anything dumb. Yeah. We did a whole episode on falls. Yeah, we did. Go back and review the falls episode and know how a fall can kill you. Yeah, it can. I do these tests at work. And the first question I'm starting to ask is, how many falls have you had in the last six months? And it's shocking how many people fall all the mm-hmm. time, all the time. So I read them the right act and uh, they're very dangerous. Are, are they falling because they're not being safe or they just fall? The reasons are as varied as the patient. Not all of these people have brain injury. Some do. Yeah. And that's why they fall because they have a hemiparetic side and they just don't have the balance because the musculature isn't doing well. Mm-hmm. Remember, it, it, a lack of balance is really three things. It's proprioception, eyesight, and inner ear stuff. A lot of times, that's not the issue. They're fine in all three of those. The problem they have is that their muscles aren't there to support them the way they should on the more affected side. And sometimes it's bilateral if they've had a brain injury. So, But we have other people that are compromised cardiovascularly, uh, have mm-hmm. lung problems, have had lung surgery, and they fall. They just yeah. get fatigued and they go down. You know, they get, oh, what's that thing when you stand up too fast and you- Oh, orthostatic hypotension. Get orthostatic hypotension. Yeah. Thank you, Deb. That's yeah, a that tough one. Good. Yeah. All right. Moving on with the lower extremity. Here's one. This will kill you. 
This is common sense, kids. It takes research to tell you what common sense could automatically tell you. Task-specific training may be beneficial for improving functional ambulation and gait. Now, let me review what that means because I know I probably lost you in the curve. Very complicated. If you want to learn how to walk or relearn how to walk, you got to walk. Craziness. That is. Wow. We said wow at the same time. That's great. Hmm. Now, the LEAPS trial was the very large partial weight supported treadmill training trial. It was Pam Duncan and Catherine Sullivan, somebody I consider a friend, but two big names. And they did the largest trial in the history of mankind on the lower extremity, most expensive trial. And it was partial weight supported treadmill training. So they were harnessed and then the therapist would move the leg forward and therapists hate it because their back went bad because they had to crouch on the floor or whatever. What they found was that that technology didn't work as well as standard of care gait training done by a physical therapist. But here was the weird part about it. It was the first very large trial to show that gait training actually worked. Now, it was published back in, I want to say, 2010 or so. But still, even the stuff that we assume is true has to be proven to some degree. That's what the LEAPS trial did. So there's the bottom line. Gait training works, kids. Here's another one. Modified constraint-induced movement therapy may be beneficial for improving gait and balance following stroke. I do have a protocol came out of our lab for modified constraint-induced therapy in the lower extremity. It's a lot of sit-to-stand stuff. It's a lot Mm -hmm. of unweighting the unaffected side so that the affected side has to take more pressure progressively. But we have a lot of exercises. In constraint-induced therapy, part two is the entire protocol. So if you're interested in doing that at work, or if you're interested in printing it out and bringing it to your therapist to suggest that you guys try it, um, you can go there and find it. Let me know. By the way, anybody ever has any questions or need any documents or whatever, you can always email us at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com and we'll try to, we'll try to help you out. We've gotten a lot of emails like that already. Lower extremity, do you have anything you want to add? Well, I have Tai Chi, Qigong, and yoga for balance. Mm-hmm. Have you ever done Tai Chi? I want to do that. That seems like for, it's, for a fat old man like me, that would be a good idea. It's awesome. Wait, have you done it? I have done it. I don't continue to do it, though. I actually, I had the Tai Chi for rehab certification, but it lapsed because my renewal um, time was during COVID. And then like we had the option to do it online, but just stuff at the college got in the way. Hmm. Need to do it again. So Tai Chi for balance. And mm-hmm. when you took that class, did they teach you how to do it with people with brain injury? Keep them safe. Well, it was Tai Chi for rehab. So... I was certified to do it in a rehab setting, which I think with my training and my experience, I would have been able to do that in a rehab setting um, safely. And, you know, if anybody had wanted to, we could have easily established a safety protocol around that for them. But that wasn't happening at the time. I have heard good things about balance training with Tai Chi. You have an article Mm -hmm. that suggests it? Well, I found a meta-analysis on just mind-body movements on balance function in stroke survivors, and they established that Tai Chi, Qigong, and yoga can help improve balance as long as it's done safely. So that's the big, always the big thing in every article I read 
or in all like even in these analyses, it's doing it safely. And so if you're a, if you're a yoga instructor or if you know Tai Chi or Qigong, you could easily modify a program to make sure that it's safe for people. Absolutely. What else you got? Um, just more supporting uh, yoga and Tai Chi. Tai Chi has an overall beneficial effect on ADL balance and limb motor function, and also uh, walking ability among stroke survivors. It can also help with sleep, mood, mental health. Very cool. Yeah. I got one for you. If you're ready to uh, switch gears. Yep. Hippotherapy may be beneficial for improving balance. Now, here's what I find interesting about hippotherapy. It doesn't involve hippos because I think (laughs) riding one of those hippos would not be good. Here's, Here's something interesting. So, you know, my wife is a physical therapist. Mm-hmm. Her sister, Kaya, so my, my wife's name is Isla, and her sister, Kaya, is also a physical therapist. And one of her nieces, Lauda, just got her a physical therapy license. Wow. And she's always been into horses. So she started a clinic in Finland that does hippotherapy. They're, they're bringing in, they got a farm and they bring people in. And they, it's pretty amazing. Hippotherapy, improved balance. Check that out. Check that out. Get to good hang stuff. out with horses, mm-hmm. get to smell the, the clean, fresh air, Yep. as long as the horse is not being a horse. And it's just awesome. I mean, it you is. get to interface with a very large, powerful animal. That's got to be cool. Mm-hmm. Well, listen, if you're ever in Finland above the Arctic Circle and you have problems with balance issues after a brain injury, hit me up. I got a lady. She'll awesome. fix you right up. That's so cool. So my friend... She doesn't do it technically, but um, she lives in the country and she has friends who have horses and they sometimes allow people who have had strokes to come and ride the horses. And beyond what it does for people physically, it just, people relax, they get happy, their whole countenance changes when they get on a horse. It's very good for people. Wow. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm telling you, that's that's good stuff. It is good stuff. Okay. I got one that you already said, and we're just going to reiterate it. I think action observation with gait training may be beneficial for improving functional ambulation, balance, and gait. Action observation. Action observation. That's good stuff. It is. Here's one. Aquatic therapy may be- Ooh. Wait, you got something on aquatic? <laughs> that was the one I was going to ask if we could talk about next. Oh, do, well, wait. Do you have anything on it? Because all I got is a sentence, and then I'm going to dump all over aquatic therapy just because you need a pool. And I, you know, it's the Ramachandran rule. You, you can't have something that's too expensive or too complicated. But other than that, I think it's great. So, what do you got on it? I have conflicting evidence. I have one that says there's strong evidence that aquatic therapy is more effective than land based therapy alone. And then I have conflicting evidence that it's more effective. But I do have this article that has. Robert T. Sell's name on it. And I just thought that you might think that was pretty cool. Very it's cool. A, yeah, it's a 2020 article evaluating the effectiveness of aquatic therapy on mobility, balance, and level of functional independence in stroke rehab, a systematic review, and meta-analysis. And I agree with what you're saying about the pool. And I was, I was kind of thinking about that when I was preparing for the podcast. And I thought, you know, it's so great. You, you go to tour some of these rehab facilities and they show you all of the amazing things that they have 
even a pool. But then we also live in a world where their productivity is important and the time that a therapist gets to spend with somebody is kind of limited. So there's a lot of work involved in the pool because people have to get there, they have to change their clothes, get in the pool, you know. So I just wonder how much it's how how much it's being used. And it's great if people are using it, but it's not simple. There's I'll that. bet it's nice for survivors though to get in the pool and feel a little bit weightless for for a time. Yeah. Um and I think when you said there's conflicting evidence, can we just agree there's there's going to be conflicting evidence for everything? Yeah. We're just trying to figure out whether it falls on one side, probably not so much we should go for it, or the other side, and maybe we should consider it. And that's where we're, we are now with what works. Yeah. And maybe just more research needs to be done. And I think I mentioned this before in the research episode, studies aren't done the same all the time. And so that makes doing these systematic reviews challenging. Yeah. None of them are done the same. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So it's rare that you're going to absolutely replicate what somebody else did. Yeah. Because everybody has another idea. Yeah. They want to make it their own in some way. Mm -hmm. Sometimes within one lab, you'll do replications. You'll start out with a case study and then a case series, a few more people, and then a small study, maybe that's not double-blinded, and then a large study that is, and then a much larger study. And by then, other labs have taken over and they're, they're doing their own thing. Yeah. So, yeah. It's, it's, it is, I don't think it's complicated, this stuff. I think it is complex. I've always thought of it as like a puzzle, a child's puzzle. You got the horse and you got the pig, the farm animals, right? Yeah. You got the, um, the dog and you got the cow. And those are all real simple. The treatment options are simple, but where they fit together, that's, that's the real alchemy. That's a good word, alchemy. Alchemy. Love that word. Okay, let's get back to uh, a couple things with the lower extremity. Functional electrical stimulation may be beneficial for improving functional ambulation, gait, activities of daily living, and muscle strength in the lower extremity. Here you go. NMES. So that's neuromuscular electrical stimulation. There's going to be some movement involved, maybe beneficial for muscle strength, range of motion, and spasticity. Interesting. Now, e-stim does help reestablish brain control over whatever you're e-stimming. So it makes sense that it would reduce spasticity. Here's another one. Just sticking with the lower extremity and electrical stimulation tends. That's the one where you just feel it, but you're not moving may be beneficial for improving functional mobility, functional ambulation, balance, gait, and spasticity. Still trying to get my head around. Maybe you can help me with this. What's the difference between functional ambulation and gait? I don't really know, but uh, it seems like eSTEM, once again, is one of those core treatment options that seems to help. I am going to put an article on the show notes for what works, chapter two that we're in now, for how to uncomplicate eSTEM. Because all this hand-wringing that therapists go through about e-stim, just do it. And it can be even TENS appears to help. Is this because of the sensation improvements that occur too? I think that's part of it. Okay. I think that's part of it. Yeah. Now, NMES, there is muscle strength increase. So that you would expect the muscle to be activated and it would hypertrophy over time. That's why you would get muscle strength. Um, let me see. Everyone except the TENS 
and the TENS doesn't activate the muscle. You can just feel it. The functional electrical stimulation, the neuromuscular electrical stimulation, both of those increase muscle strength according to the EBRSR or their best guess at least. Here's another one for electrical stimulation. Electrical stimulation with mirror therapy. Have you ever heard of mirror therapy, Deb? Hmm, sounds familiar. <laughs> electrical stimulation with mirror therapy may be beneficial for improving functional ambulation, balance, and muscle strength. That must be the caramel. Two great tastes that taste great together. You got the chocolate, you got the peanut butter, and now you got the caramel. I got three things just to show you that I'm willing to go outside the EBRSR and talk about other meta-analyses. Okay. So here's one. This meta was trying to answer, does speech therapy reduce dysarthria in post-stroke survivors with dysarthria? It's from the European Journal of Physical Rehabilitation Medicine, 2021. It's called Dysarthria and Stroke, the Effectiveness of Speech Rehab, a Meta-Analysis. So some of this, you know, my, my daughter is pre-speech and my office is next to her bedroom. So I had to go next door and ask her these questions because I didn't understand a lot of this. This is from Vittorio Emanuele University Hospital in Catania, Italy, which I have no idea where that is. They did it in chronic survivors. So let's just go through a couple of these terms. We have aphasia. We have dysphagia. You can have global aphasia. You can have receptive aphasia where you don't understand what's being said to you, but you actually talk pretty well. You can have expressive aphasia where you can't talk, but you can understand pretty well. You can have a combination. You can have dysphagia, which is a reduction. And most people that they call aphasic, A, you put A in front of anything like asexual, it becomes the opposite of. So aphasia really technically means they can't talk, but everybody uses aphasia to, as this umbrella term to hit everything involved involving anything that involves Broca's and Wernicke's area, which is on the left side of the brain and involves conjuring up words and then also understanding words that are coming at you. There's another one, dysphagia, just mm -hmm. to make it more confusing. That's difficulty swallowing. But dysarthria has nothing to do with Broca's area and Wernicke's area. Now, I mentioned this. My sister has had a brain injury. She is not aphasic. She can talk, but she is dysarthric. So she's very smart, but she thought like she, a little bit like she had something in her mouth. I mean, like a bag of marbles. Like a bag of marbles. Mm -hmm. And and then, you know, I got to say, Wendy, you like the red wine quite a bit. And so when she's a little tipsy and she's on the phone, she's trying to get ideas out. It's a little hard to understand. But yeah, she's doing great. About one third of survivors of brain injury have dysarthria. And this is what I found. This is what I had to ask my daughter about. The alternating and sequential motion rate and maximum phonation, and phonation, she told me, is the production of speech sounds. The time of those, that is how long it took them to say these different sounds, improved after speech therapy. They talked faster. And my sister, I'm going to bring up because I asked her permission if I could talk about her. And this is what she said. I said, can I talk about, and she said, absolutely. It's, it's the residual I hate the most from my TBI. People think you're mentally challenged when they hear a speech impediment. Any other great things that you can add that I can then take credit for? Here's what she said, that all the shitty hard work will make a more productive outcome. So she's talking about something that we've talked about, which is it's hard work. And some people don't want to do it, man, it's shitty. So excuse my language, but there it goes. She says, it, it all sucks but you can retain and relearn many, if not most things. Rehab is horrible, but it's finite. Boom. Wendy Levine. There you go. 
So speech therapy uh, allows you to speak faster if you're dysarthric. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Okay, here's another one. Complete left turn. 2020 Journal of Neuroengineering and Rehab. Immediate and long-term effects of brain-computer interface, or what they call BCI, of the upper extremity after stroke, a systematic review and meta-analysis. The use of BCI, brain-computer interface, has significant immediate effects on the improvement of hemiparetic upper extremity function in patients after stroke, but there's a limited number of studies to support long-term effects. How does this happen? You use an electroencephalogram. So that's the sticky electrodes that go on your skull. And then uh, that then interfaces with the muscles. So as soon as brain sets out the signal for the muscle to move, then there's often some sort of reward at the end of that. It activates electrical stimulation that amplifies what you intended to do to help you do it with electrical stimulation because electrical stimulation will move the muscles. Do you know anybody who might be doing that in the near future? I do. I don't know if we're allowed to say though. Okay. Maybe we will be allowed to say in the future. And then I hope we'll so. Say it. I hope so too. But anyway, so there's an expensive piece of technology that's going to, uh, that, that may be coming down. And you look, it may be expensive now and in a little while. Now they have these ones where it's basically not sticky electrodes. They have these helmets that just sit on your head. Yeah. So the one in that one article that I referenced a while back, it's a headset. It's the Sky technology, I think yeah, it was. Yeah, I think I've seen that. There's a bunch yeah. of them out there, actually. But yeah, so that's going to... And then, you know what's going to happen is it's going to be so much downward pressure on the prices that maybe you can get it for 50 bucks, and then mm. you can do it at home and all kinds at of home. cool stuff. Yeah. It's more like gaming, am I correct? It's a little bit like gaming. Now, we did a lot of studies with a company called Neuromove, and they would put electrodes... And I, I have a machine... It's right here. I'm going to show you the case I got just because it's really cool. Uh, the name of the company is Zynex. Um, and uh, they make a bunch of stuff, but one of them is this machine. And I could take it out and show you, but folks at home couldn't see it anyway. So you put e-stims, let's say on the finger and wrist extensors. And, you know, when you think about a movement, and this is the beauty of mental practice, the muscles actually fire minutely sub-threshold, way below what a therapist could feel with their fingers, but the EMG can feel it, the electromyography. Mm. So the electrodes then send that signal to the machine that then, quote, rewards them with e-stim that takes them through that movement of finger and wrist extension. So if you're trying to do repetitive practice, you can do it even before they can do repetitive practice. So you have repetitions before they can do repetitions. And e-stim drives brain changes, so it's two great tastes that taste great together. That's pretty cool. That is cool. So there's that. And let's see. I think I have one last one. Should I do it now? Yeah. Okay, good. Clinical Rehabilitation 2019, Sensory Retraining of the Leg After Stroke, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. Positive effect was found for joint position sense, light touch, and two-point discrimination. And most importantly to me, better Berg balance scales. So Berg balance is used a lot to determine whether your balance is good or not. And that means that there's going to be a higher score on the Berg balance means less falls. And that's what I care about. That's what most clinicians care about. So what did they do? Remember we had an episode, it was on sensation recovery. They did exactly what we were talking about. Localization. Where am I touching you? Proprioception. You put the 
the um, you place the affected limb in some position, and then they try to match it with their the the limb that moves better because that moves better. So you hold it; their their eyes are closed. You hold it; their affected limb in some position, and then they try to match it. They open their eyes and they see that this is the right side isn't exactly like the left side. The elbow's more bent. The fingers are more extended, and so they try to match it over time. That's proprioception and kinesthesia. Stereognosis. That was, uh, I think you explained it really well last time. Mm-hmm. Do you want me to do that again? Do you want to do it again? <laughs> sure. That's when you can identify something through touch. Hmm. So, for example, if you reach in your pocket and you have a bunch of coins and you want the quarter, you can tell which one is the quarter just through touch. And if you can't do that, that, that may be a loss of tactile sensation, but it may also be a higher cognitive thing where that object just isn't coming to mind in your, in your mind's eye. Well, I'm glad you brought up cognition because at some point I want to talk about that. Okay, good. Let me get through this and it's all yours. Okay. So they did stereognosis, object recognition. They did pressure, different forms of pressure. How much am I pushing you? And weight discrimination. Remember that one where mm. you put a one pound weight, they're, they're blindfolded. They can't see the weight. You put a one pound weight and you say, okay, you've got a feel for that. Okay, great. You put a two pound weight. Is this lighter or heavier than the last one? Okay. That, I think it's, it's hard to tell. I think it's heavier. Okay. You put the one pound back in there. Is that lighter or heavier? They all start to feel the same. You put mm-hmm. a three pound in there and you, you just try to confuse them and you bring the amounts of weight that you're changing lower and lower and lower. That's the challenge. So the differences between the two is less and less over time. Texture discrimination, we talked about that. Um, the study also used TENS, which was another thing we talked about. It's this constant tap, 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 tap of TENS may help reestablish sensation in folks with brain injury. I th- think that's underused clinically, sensation recovery specifically. Is that your experience? Yeah, and we talked about maybe why that was. You know, in research, we don't like sensation because we have a hard time measuring it. What are you mm-hmm. feeling? How much pain are you feeling? All these are sort of very subjective. In rehab for clinicians, they don't get paid for sensation recovery, but they do get paid for functional recovery or at least recovery of movement. And then usually the brain injured person would, if you know, given the choice of those two, would want to go towards movement, not sensation with their valuable clinical time. Of course, what we found out last time when we talked about sensation during that episode, you're doing both at the same time anyway. Every time you move, you got to feel the movement. So you're doing both at the same time. Yeah. Do you think some of that, the reason is it's an older belief that sensation can't be addressed in the clinic? I remember being told that in OT school. Really? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wonder if that's just part and parcel of the fact that people wanted to ignore it, so they did. But yeah, no, it's just as neuroplastic as any other part of the brain. Yeah, I think that's pretty cool. So maybe if we talk about it more, then more people will start doing it. Absolutely. Yeah. So you had something else that you wanted to add? Well, I wanted to talk about cognition because cognition is often affected when people have a stroke. And one of the best interventions aside from doing cognitive-specific interventions, is physical activity. And I found this article, Effects of Physical Activity on Post-Stroke Cognitive Function, 
uh, meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials found that cognitive benefits were achieved in as soon as 12 weeks. And combined intervention programs yielded the largest cognitive gains. And this is even in people who were in the chronic stroke phase as well. So physical activity is always beneficial. Absolutely, it is. And it doesn't matter if it's Alzheimer's or it's Parkinson's where they have cognitive decline, if you can get them exercising, and there's a bunch of different reasons why. First of all, it increases blood flow to the brain and the brain loves blood. Yeah. Second of all, in every case, including Alzheimer's, the hippocampus has more blood flow and more synaptic connections after exercising. You remember the hippocampus is where short-term memories are stored. And that's important. Here's a good way to remember the word hippocampus. Have you ever heard the saying, oh, she has the memory of an elephant? Yeah. yeah. I mean, they're really, they're big animals. They must have big brains. They have long memories. Okay. What about hippos? They must have long memories. Hippos, they're big animals. And where would they go to make those memories? To campus. It's the hippocampus. So the <laughs> hippocampus is like, it's, there's hippocampi. There's two of them. They're almond shaped. A lot of the midbrain stuff, it's right in that midbrain area. And there, a lot of them have two parts, one on the left and one on the right. And um, yeah, the hippocampus just goes crazy with exercise. This is why, you know, you went for a walk in between mm-hmm. these two episodes because it helps. That's why you it have does best help. ideas when you're out walking and doing I it. know. I found an article that's not stroke related, but it was the effects of exercise and executive function in older adults and activity is what helps improve executive functioning skills. And those are things that often decline when people get older or when they develop dementia, some sort of dementia, the executive functions. So, Yeah. Yeah. Get out there and exercise. I mean, if exercise was a pill, we'd all be taking it. That's the old cliche, but it's Mm -hmm. so true and it's important. Yeah. And I think a lot of people have resistance to exercise, which I do. I don't love to work out, but I like to walk. I like to do yoga. I like to dance. And so things that make you happy are the things that you should do. And then it's not really like an effort in doing that. Mm. I wanted to talk about marijuana. Well, who doesn't? Exactly. You live in New York, man. You can do anything you want. <laughs> Ohio, they'll string it up. But yeah. So what about what about pot? First of all, I learned that it doesn't cause stroke the way cigarettes do, right. cigarette smoking. It's really good for treating other effects beyond the spasticity and things like that. It's, it's more like anxiety, anger, sadness, frustration, hopelessness, fear, depression types of feelings which I think is really important because if people are feeling those negative types of emotions, then it's harder to participate in your rehabilitation. And it's also effective for treating pain and inflammation. I also think early after the brain injury, there's some suggestion that it reduces neurotoxicity, destruction Mm. of neurons. It has a protective element to it as well. I've done some talks in Colorado recently, and you know, there's often therapists from every different kind of facility. And um, I'm like, hey, does anybody here um, work in skilled nursing? And I go, yeah, yeah, they do. So, um, are they allowed to smoke pot? I mean, you know, these are people; they're adults. Can they smoke pot? They go, yeah, yeah, they can smoke pot. And I go, how does that affect rehab? 
well, they don't want to go. They just say, no, I'm not. They're too chill. I'm not not going anywhere. (laughs) So there is that downside. I I wonder also, I'm a little concerned. Some of the, the newer strains of marijuana can be incredibly strong compared to what we had back in the 60s and 70s. Um, so that's one concerning, and mm-hmm. there seems to be enough evidence now to say that it does affect memory. But I think as a, a sort of temporary thing for, as you say, anxiety. The other thing they're talking about is hallucinogenics for deep depression, post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, maybe mm-hmm. we should do a whole episode on that because you keep bringing me back to this idea that if somebody's depressed, they're not going to recover. It's, it's there's no motivation there there's no will like sometimes you have like in your head you know that you want to but you can't make yourself so it's it's legal completely in new york state or is that not is that a misrepresentation uh i think it is legal i think there's uh certain amounts up to a certain amount Mm. okay i don't know i'm not really into pot smoking and yeah that sort of thing it's not my bit it's not my gig it's not my bag either not at all okay deb i think we've reached the the silly point we've done the outcome measures for silliness and we've hit them and uh yeah i feel a little stoned right now anyway so maybe we should sign off and let these people go yeah we can let them go okay well thanks so much Uh, yeah that was fun yeah thanks pete thanks thanks deb thank you so much for listening to this episode We appreciate your support and would love to hear from you. Ask us questions and share your thoughts by email at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com. That's noggins, the word and, spelled out, neurons at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with others you think will benefit. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time on Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified.